So how many of you remember the show Fear Factor? Anybody? Okay, cool, a few of you. So this show aired during my young childhood years. This was a staple within the Lang family. And there would be three men, three women, who would be pitted against each other. And they would have to overcome three different obstacles. And the winner would receive $50,000. Nowadays, for game shows, that might not be a lot. But back then, it was quite a lot. The three different stunts would incorporate physical, mental challenges that would range from some extreme jumps, being in a car, jumping over a ramp to eating some really disgusting things, or obtaining objects in the midst of some scary things. And Joe Rogan, which he was the host before he was like UFC guy, podcast guy, not endorsing him in any way, but just stating the host. But Joe Rogan would begin each show by saying, imagine a world where your greatest fears become reality. Welcome to Fear Factor. And then like, dun, dun, dun. Then he would, of course, give his little like asterisk that said like, these stunts should not be performed under any circumstances in your home. And then all the little kids are like, nope, I'm doing that. Bring the cockroaches. And you're like, because I was that kid. Anyways, before we move into my childhood trauma. But here's the thing. It's easy for us who look at this show, we can sit from the comfort of our own couch and say, oh man, I would have went through that. I would have done that jump, that disgusting thing. I would have had 12, come on. But it's a whole different story once you're in the game. When that disgusting thing is in front of you or that jump is there or whatever obstacle it is that's in front of you, it's different from the posture of sitting and observing versus when you're actually in it. And as followers of Jesus, we have an entire collection of writings of individuals and groups of people who have endured obstacles or have been at least faced with obstacles, hardships, persecution. And there are story after story of people who obviously fell short, shout out to Adam and Eve and others, and we're like, we would have done differently. We wouldn't have given him. We wouldn't have eaten of the fruit. And we also have other stories, like the story that Laura read for us this morning, stories of triumph and victory, and God was glorified, and God moved, and they overcame hardship and persecution. And for us, we also, in our lives, have these moments where hardship, trial, persecution come our way. There's an obstacle in front of us. It seems so beyond us and that we possibly can't do it. And there's something about following Jesus that he actually leads us into situations where we need courage. We need strength. In one of my favorite books called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, by a guy named Alan Kreider, he brilliantly describes for his readers the beginning of the church and its ethos, meaning like what kept the church together, what moved it forward. And as he talked about the Christian witness, which by the way, the word witness, if you see it at all in the Greek, is the word martus, where we get the word martyr. So when we quote Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, Jesus is calling his disciples to actually welcome the idea that they were to be witnesses or martyrs. 
great charge from Jesus before he ascends to heaven. But as Alan Kreider quoted here about the ethos of the early church, he said this, it was not primarily what the Christians said that carried weight with outsiders. It was what they did and embodied that was both disconcerting and converting. It was their habitus, their reflexes and way of life that suggested that there was another way to perceive reality that made the Christians interesting, challenging, and worth investigating. Is this true of the church today? That the outside world sees not what we post on Facebook, not about the words that we say in a knee-jerk reaction when someone asks our stance on something, but would the outside world see the church or see us as followers of Jesus as interesting, challenging, and worth investigating, not by the words we speak, but by the actions that we live? Because that is what the lost and dying world around us will notice. Our words will eventually fall short or fall away. But what the world will notice is our actions. We'll notice how we handle situations, not what we say about a situation. And what we have here before us, church family, is a story of three gentlemen, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they embodied what they believed. They were faced with a real-life situation where the theological discussion became reality. And before we head into the text, I want to at least make mention of this. I don't want you to hear that this sermon is coming from a posture of, I've noticed that our church has done this, this, and this, and we need to really course correct. Because as I look in this room and as I see faces and stories I know that this is a church family that has embodied biblical courage well. And I'm proud of you. Well done. So this isn't going to be a sermon that's coming from a posture of discipline, but more of encouragement. Because over the past few years, we have had to dig deep and dive deep deep into the presence of Jesus with very real obstacles, challenges, and hardships in front of you. Some of you might still even now be facing some of those hardships and trials and persecution. But I want to say, church, well done. We're doing a good work of persevering in Jesus. And so my prayer this morning that as we dissect this text, that it would be encouraging and actually commissioning to continue to do what God is already doing in our midst. So if you have a Bible, we're gonna walk through this story piece by piece. We're gonna be in Daniel chapter three. We'll start in verse one. So if you have a physical Bible, you can get that out. If you have a digital one, you can get that one out and turn on airplane mode so you don't get distracted. So Daniel chapter three, verse one. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to assemble the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to attend the dedication of the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue the king had set up. Then they stood before the statue Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Brief word before we move 
onward. If you remember two weeks ago, last week we had our commissioning service for the chapels, but Jordan had preached out of Daniel chapter 2, where King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that shook him to his core, and he asked all of his close people, the ones that should have been able to interpret the dream, and said, man, I had a dream, help me. They weren't able to help him. Obviously, this is Reader's Digest version. They weren't able to help him, and so they were going to go and kill every single person who is in some kind of place of authority within his kingdom. And Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had heard that, and they're like, this doesn't sit well with us. Let's pray to our God, and maybe he will be the one to reveal this mystery. God came through. Daniel was able to speak up, give the interpretation for the dream, and then we ended chapter two with Nebuchadnezzar saying, your God, meaning Yahweh, is indeed God of gods, Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, since you were able to reveal this mystery. And then Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego got promotions, and that would be a really great way to end the book of Daniel. But then we get to chapter three, and the guy that's saying Yahweh is God of gods and Lord of lords goes like this and decides to build himself a golden statue. Regardless of what the statue looks like, this guy named King Nebuchadnezzar is extremely insecure and extremely proud. Because as we read in the story, there are already so many idols and gods in the land. If there were one God that would be enough, why do they need many? And also, this just goes to show that the lip service of a political leader does not mean actual action steps moving forward. And so King Nebuchadnezzar, out of his great pride and insecurity, decides to make another god. And by the way, it's not a small god. 90 feet high is really tall, and 9 feet wide is really big. And if you take note, he made it of gold. And if you remember the, the interpretation of the dream that Daniel gave about the gold, silver, and all the other material God, that maybe Nebuchadnezzar was like, you know what? Maybe that dream meant instead of adding the other elements, I'm just going to make a really big gold God that will last forever. And so out of his insecurity, out of his pride, he builds this statue and invites all of his people to come and look at it. Which, by the way, who would be in attendance at this meeting but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? So let's move forward in the story, verse 4. A, loud, or a herald loudly proclaimed, people of every nation and language, you are commanded. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, you are to fall face down and worship the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Once again, interestingly enough, beginning of verse 4 says, a herald loudly proclaimed that often the one who is yelling the loudest isn't the one who is most accurate. And especially in the kingdom of God, we might want to beware of the people who are screaming loud. Because as Jesus said a few times, blessed are the humble 
and the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Jesus later in Matthew 11 says to come to me because I am lowly and humble in heart. Or you could just read the entire Sermon on the Mount and get the picture. So in the midst of this herald loudly proclaiming these things, declaring that they must worship this God or else they would be thrown into a fiery furnace, you wonder what Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego are thinking. Because they're in that governmental seat, they were promoted for their faith in King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. And they're sitting in this meeting hearing about all of this. If you take note in this section, you don't see or hear them say a thing. Does that mean that their faith is weak? Does it mean that they didn't know what to say? I believe they stayed silent and they attended the meeting and they didn't rebel or grab their flags and pitchforks and decide to rebel against King Nebuchadnezzar in that moment. I believe he didn't do that or they didn't do that because they wanted to obey the king as far as they could. Because as we've talked about living in Babylon, that as Christians, our job is first of all to be obedient to the gospel, but second, if we live in the empire, as long as it depends upon our morality, that we would obey the things that the laws would state. But it's when the law crosses over with our faith, that's the troublesome part. And so for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because of their position, they attended the meeting because as much as it depended on their faith in Jesus, they wanted to obey. And we'll get in a second of where that line crossed for them. But also, with the position they were in, maybe they felt an obligation to be a public example for those who were also living in exile of how to stand up against idolatry. What if God had put them in that place for such a time as this? To be an example for those who would choose to follow the way of Jesus, and maybe they were conflicted. Which, once again, I want to just pause and say a well done, church family. Because as I look out, I know many of you are in positions of high authority, many of you are in the public arena. And you have stood firm in your faith in Jesus Christ. And you have not wavered to the left or to the right. Well done, church. Let's keep moving forward in the story. Let's skip forward to verse 8. Some Chaldeans took this occasion to come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. You as king have issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music must fall down and worship the gold statue. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. There are some Jews you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men have ignored you, the king. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. So some of these Chaldeans, whether it's out of envy or jealousy for the position that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were put in, and they were not, regardless of their motive, they notice that these three characters are not obeying the king. 
And if you notice their response, their response is a word-for-word -word quotation of the decree. So they didn't go in flailing their arms like, like looking around like they were very calculated. And I imagine them sitting back and waiting and seeing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego time and time again when all the instruments were being played, which, by the way, that's a real tongue twister to try to read all that really carefully anyways. But as those things are playing, I imagine the Chaldeans are sitting back like, okay, They've done it a few times. They do it again. Let's get them. And as they approach Nebuchadnezzar, they quote word for word the decree that he was all about. And then in verse 12, that there are some Jews. You have appointed to manage the province of Babylon. Cutting deep at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's ethnicity, but also, I believe, their faith. And so at this point, you would think we could continue on into verse 13, and Nebuchadnezzar was understanding because he had remembered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were part of like the clan with Yahweh, and they were okay, they canceled the decree, and everything was really great, right? I don't think that's how the story went. Let's go to verse 13. Then in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego once again, loud, mad, over the top, not characteristics of the kingdom of God. So verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue I made. But if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? So it seems as if Nebuchadnezzar is giving them an out. Like he will throw away all past transgressions and be okay with that as long as here and now, the next time you hear the music, you bow down. Or you'll be thrown into the furnace. And I love the question that Nebuchadnezzar asks, especially the last one, and who is the God who can rescue you from my power? I imagine Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego like sitting in the chairs, the tables there, Nebuchadnezzar's in his seat of authority. He asked the question. I imagine them looking at each other and giving the biggest smile. Like, I don't think he knows what he just asked. But church family, do we get excited about those questions? Because I don't think the outside world is ready to hear about the goodness of our God. Because I think, in part, we shy away from those questions instead of being prepared to give the answer. Because who is the God that could restore and redeem all of creation? Let me tell you about that God. Are we excited to give an answer to that question? So a few things to note about their response. But before we do, starting in verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. 
If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. I love that they said, like, we don't need to give you an answer, and then they gave an answer. But I think the real answer wasn't in the words they said, but later in the actions that they did. Anyways, a few notes about this. Number one, they answered in unity. Notice that Shadrach didn't speak on behalf of the other two. Abednego wasn't the one that spoke up because the other two were like really nervous. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied that their answer was in unity. And there's something, church family, about linking arms with other believers when you're standing up for the gospel. And that courage might start with one, but it's maintained and fueled by the company of many. One person standing up and being courageous is bold and beautiful, but when we all lock arms together as a church family, as a community, as we all become that light around the circle like we just saw, there's something powerful about that. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in unity replied to the king in courage. Point number two, uh, Jordan mentioned this a few weeks ago in Daniel chapter two, that Daniel responded with discretion intact. And I believe here that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not answering snidely or rudely, but that they were answering without anxiety or anger or rage, but that I believe they were calm and poised. And it's almost as if these questions were not a surprise to them when Nebuchadnezzar had asked them. The last thing to take note in this response that they gave, they didn't guarantee an outcome. Notice they didn't make a bold declaration that even if you throw us in the fire, we will be fine. We will stay alive. We will dance around in the ashes. Like there's no guarantee of that, but they guaranteed their steadfastness in God, the one that they love and obey. Their obedience was first to God before a king. And that even if the fire takes them over, they will still choose to serve their God because their God is worth it. Like the lines weren't blurred between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of heaven, that they chose citizenship in the kingdom of heaven and they were allegiant here, even if it meant this kingdom came after them. That even before they had this meeting with Nebuchadnezzar, I believe that they had resolved that their God was worth serving even to the point of martyrdom. And may we be the peoples in Vermilion County that in unity stand firmly on the foundation of Jesus and don't waver even if the worst comes our way. So the story continues, and as you imagine, Nebuchadnezzar is super thrilled. He's absolutely not thrilled, verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage, and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He gave orders to heat the furnace seven times more than was customary. Yeah, he, he's mad mad. And he commanded some of the best soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. 
So these men in their trousers, robes, head coverings, and other clothes were tied up and thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Since the king's command was so urgent and the furnace extremely hot, the raging flames killed those men who carried Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego up. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell, bound into the furnace of blazing fire. And once again, it seems like at this point, if the story ended, this would be a real bummer. Like heroes willing to stand for their faith get thrown into the fire. Okay, let's just, let's move on. But how good is our God that the story continues? That there's a verse 24, the story doesn't stop at verse 23, verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in alarm. He said to his advisors, didn't we throw these three men bound into the fire? Yes, of course, your majesty, they replied to the king. Verse 25, he exclaimed, look, I see four men not tied, walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Even in the midst of your fire, whatever hardships and trials and circumstances that you are going through, know that there is one radiating like the son of God who is with you. God didn't remove the fire in the furnace. He didn't snap his fingers and all of a sudden it was room temperature. The fire was still there, but God's presence in there was more relevant to them than the fire that they were in the midst of. And they stood firm, even in the fire, even if that fire took them over and ultimately ended their lives. They were willing to be in there because obedience to God mattered more than what man could do to their physical body. Verse 26, Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of blazing fire and called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the most high God, come out. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. When the satraps, prefects, governors, and the king's advisors gathered around, they saw that the fire had no effect on their bod- the bodies of these men. Not a hair of their heads was singed, their robes were unaffected, and there was no smell of fire on them. The fire had no effect on them. And it wasn't because of some magic trick or parlor trick that they performed. It was the presence of our living God. And then we continue on into verse 28. And I know we're running short on time, but verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel and rescued his servants who trusted in him. Catch this church family. They violated the king's command and risked their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I issue a decree that anyone of any people, nation, or language who says anything offensive against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb from limb and his house made a garbage dump. That's lovely. For there is no other god who is able to deliver like this. Then the king rewarded them. But take note once again, church, that the aim in the kingdom of God is not to get like our government to do what the kingdom of heaven wants, 
though the words of, of King Nebuchadnezzar sound lovely and a lot of it is theologically rich, that the aim for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was not governmental law, but was to stand firm in God and that other people would be able to see that God is worth following even if the empire says otherwise. And this is also why we can't hang our hat on what our governmental officials or public figures say. We just can't. Our faithfulness to God should be more dependent on what God says about us and to us and through us than what whoever in the office is saying or whatever actor or actress that claims that they believe in Jesus, but then the next week they do something else and for some reason you feel like your faith is crumbling. May we not look to public figures to give affirmation, whether positively or negatively, in our courageous walk with Jesus. May our eyes be so fixated on Jesus or the one that is with us that is shining like a son of the gods. Or since Jordan loves hymns, I thought I would bring a, a hymn in. Would this be our prayer, that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And we see our world around us who is trying to stand on sinking sand. And we who are on the rock have a call to go out and to show them through our radical obedience and love to be courageous in the midst of the hardship and the fire. Which also means, church family, that we continue to persevere in the good work God is already doing in our midst. As I look around, there are stories of biblical courage in this room, just to brag on a few. Our elders and our search team committee have courageously stood firm in what the Spirit was doing in our church's midst in our search for our next lead pastor. That took real biblical courage to stand firm on their convictions that they heard from the Lord. And they took hits, y'all. And as I look back on the past few years, I am so grateful for our elders and search team for standing firm on what God was doing. Some might not have seen it, but now that we're on the other side, God was moving. Speaking of God moving, Jordan and Amanda have courageously in the past, and you can ask them for all the details if they see fit, but they had a difficult season in their, their last church that while simultaneously feeling a call towards something new, that they also courageously stood in the midst of what God was doing at their last church. And there are also a few of us in this room that a few weeks ago courageously testified about the Lord's goodness in our midst. And some of you are still enduring those trials, but yet even as you've endured those trials and proclaimed a few weeks ago that you are exemplifying biblical courage. 
And like with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in unity, that as we press forward in courage with what the Lord has called us to walk through, this is why community is so important, that when I go through a trial, and as I go through some fire, and you can't smell the stench on me because my God has allowed me to persevere, that that testimony can encourage this church family. And so that is why you and I enter into our walks with Jesus and we testify of God's goodness and we dig deep with what God is doing and we share about that willingly because that testimony can encourage someone else in our midst or even encourage someone outside of these walls. And so as we wrap up and as I've been preparing for this message and and praying and doing all the good things, I just sense from the Lord that there's some of us in this room that as we talk about the fires of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I sense that there are some of you who are in the midst of a fire. I sense that some of you are in the midst of a hard season. And some of you might not feel like that figure like the son of man is next to you. You might feel isolated or alone. You might feel like the fire is taking over your life. And so how I want to end this is I'm gonna ask you to be slightly courageous. I hope that's okay. But if that's you and you've been in that fiery season You felt isolated and alone, and maybe you felt like that dog with the cone, and all you see in front of you is the blazing furnace, and you have no idea how in the world you're going to get out of it. I just want you to slip up your hand. I know I didn't have anyone bow their heads or close their eyes like typical pastors would do, but this is the courageous part because we want to pray for you. As a church community, as a church family, We want to pray for you if you're in the midst of that season, which I know is going to take courage, and some of you might be sitting next to people you don't know. It's okay. Because if we leave here and you're still going through that fire, you need to know that we in this room of brothers and sisters in Christ love you and care about you, and we want to lift you up to the Lord in prayer. So if that's you, and you felt like you've been in a season like you're in that furnace and you feel like there might be no hope. Could we just pray for you? If you don't mind lifting up your hand right where you're at. Awesome, thank you. So for those of you that are around um, someone that does decide to raise their hand, if you don't mind getting as close as they would feel comfortable, potentially laying a hand on their shoulder, that would be great. Um, is there anyone else? I don't, I don't want to just blow past this. I know we did all the open sharing and stuff earlier, and that's okay. Let's just pray. I'm reminded of the words in Psalm 23 that the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. 
restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you, our good shepherd, are with me. And so, God, I pray for those that did raise their hands or maybe some that, that didn't, but are in a season that feels like that valley of the shadow of death. I just lift them up before you, praying that your, your spirit and your presence would be made known in their lives, that you would meet them in the midst of the fire, the furnace that they are in right now. And I pray that you, oh God, would lead them in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Make your presence known. Would you be honored and glorified even as they go through the fire, as they go through the valley of the shadow of death? And God, I just pray for our people, for this church family, that as we walk with you and as we leave this place and enter arenas where the world around us doesn't like Christians who are obedient to your word, I pray that you would give us courage, that you would give us unity as a church family, and that as we press back against the darkness, that even if hardship comes our way, that we would stand firm in what you have called us to do. And would you get the honor, would you get the glory, and would Vermilion County just be different because of what you are doing in our midst? God, we love you. We're so grateful for all the things that you have done, are doing, and all the things that you will do. And we just pray these things in your name. Amen. So to close, I want to leave you with this benediction of blessing. Uh, it comes from Ephesians chapter 1. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. Amen.